Then the Lord sent a great wind and a violent storm against the ship, and all the sailors were afraid. They each called out to their own God, and they threw the ship's cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. I am Jonah. I look for where I can flee so that I don't have to deal with God. I am Jonah. In my sin, I retreat deeper and deeper into darkness. I am Jonah. I put others in harm's way because of my disobedience. I am Jonah. Although I know what I need to do, I often need help doing it. I am Jonah. Sometimes I wait to obey God, hoping he'll change his mind. Well, good morning, Central. So good to be with you. would like to invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. And we are going to jump back into this story that Craig kicked off last week. And if you need a copy of Scripture, our fine ushers have already gotten the offering done and they're already walking back down. Just throw your hand up. They'll get you a copy of Scripture. And we are going to start on page 925. And I'll throw this slide back up in a few moments. But... Uh, for those of you who, who are guests this morning, so great to have you here. My name is Brad. I get to serve as the teaching pastor here at Central. And uh, before we have a chance to jump into this Jonah story, I wanted just to share something with all of us. Uh, it's an exciting announcement because many of you know that for uh, several months on end, we have been looking for an additional worship pastor. And I am pleased to announce that we are going to be having Jordan Kohler... Uh, joining our staff. And Jordan is going to be one of our worship pastors joining the creative arts team. And he will serve as our lead worship uh, leader in the second service. And also wanted to let you know that uh, Dwight is going nowhere. Dwight is staying on staff and we are so thrilled about that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I know that, that Dwight isn't, isn't out here and he probably shoot me if you heard me say this, but uh, I have appreciated Dwight. He is one of the most mature Christian leaders I have ever met in my life. And just the way that he has navigated this whole thing with us has been amazing. And we're so grateful that he's going to continue to serve at Central. So uh, Jordan is going to begin on March 6th and we'll have a more of an opportunity to formally thank him at that time. Um, but when you see Jordan and Dana and their two kids uh, moseying around Central, be sure to welcome them to the family. So Alrighty, Jonah chapter one. Now, uh, many of you were here last week. If you were not here last week, I can't encourage you enough to go back and hear what Craig did to kick off the series. This is week two in the series uh, of Jonah. Uh, last week, if you were here, Craig rooted the entire story of Jonah into its historical context. One of the fascinating things about Jonah is that when you read it, you go, okay, we don't have a time period here in the book of Jonah. We don't get anybody else's name. We don't get the king of Nineveh. All we get is Jonah's name, Jonah, son of Amittai. We don't get a time period. We don't get much of a context. We don't get anything. And the reason for that is Craig did such a great job unpacking last week is because Jonah shows up in another book of the Bible. He shows up in 2 Kings and in chapter 14, under the rule of Jeroboam, uh, of Jeroboam II, who's in the northern kingdom, we find that a Jonah son of Amittai is serving in the king's court as a prophet of God. And one of the things Craig did then was saying, okay, this is the context for the entire book of Jonah because we have Jonah in another book and unpacked how it's the middle of the 8th century BC and that there's this massive tension going on in the land of Israel because one of their arch nemesis is a group known as the Arameans in an area known as Aram, modern day Syria. But then even beyond that, there is the kingdom, the empire of Assyria that is starting to gain a lot of steam. And Jonah finds himself in this interesting predicament in the land of Israel where he feels like he is being pitted between God's justice and God's mercy. 
God's judgment and God's compassion. And Craig did a great job of unpacking just this tension that Jonah feels that all of this injustice is going on around him. God isn't doing anything about it. And what's more, we find out that God calls Jonah to go and preach a message of repentance to the Assyrians. And Jonah, we're going to find out today, is not particularly thrilled about that. And we'll have a chance in coming weeks to unpack more about what's happening in Assyria. But what I get the opportunity to do today is to hit all of chapter one of the book of Jonah. So we're going to spend a few moments, a little extra moments in the first three verses. We're going to unpack then the rest of the chapter. And then we're going to cycle back through and talk about this incredible theme that has been threaded throughout the chapter that the writer hopes that we are picking up on. And we're going to talk about what are the implications for us today. So uh, Jonah chapter one, and we are going to begin in verse one. Friends, buckle your seatbelts because this is going to be quite a ride this morning. Here we go. Jonah one goes this way. And I've already lost Jonah one. Some of you may not have even found Jonah yet. So, all right. This is that point where you like know where you're supposed to go and then you just can't find it. All right, there we go. Here we go. Jonah 1 goes this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Those are our first three verses. And these first three verses are absolutely jam-packed. Now, God's very first words to Jonah, we find in verse 2, is in the NIV translation that many of us are using. It says, go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, what I want to do this morning throughout our time is that every translation has its pros and its cons. And one of the things that other translations do that the NIV doesn't do in this Jonah 1 passage is bring out some of the literal Hebrew. And so I'm going to be kind of bouncing back and forth when I put passages up. Many of them are going to say ESV next to it for the English Standard Version. The rest of it, we're just going to read out of the NIV. And we're going to kind of bounce between the two because, again, translations have positives and they have negatives to them as well. And I want to be able to highlight the positives in both of these translations. So here's what we have here literally in the first words of God. God says, arise, go to Nineveh. Now this word arise in Hebrew is the word kum, and it literally means to stand up. So the imagery is this, Jonah is here, and God says to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Well, what we find in the very next verse is that it says this, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. So God says, Jonah, I want you to arise and I want you to go to Nineveh. But instead, Jonah arises and it says, and he fled to Tarshish. Now, where exactly is this Tarshish? Well, let me show you first of all where he's coming from. Jonah grows up in Gath Heifer. It's up in Nazareth. It's very close, or it's about just a few miles from Nazareth. It's in the Galilee region. He's probably being called in Samaria, though, because Jeroboam II, the Israelite king on the throne at this time, in whose court Jonah serves, that capital city is in Samaria. And so it says Jonah went down to Joppa in order to go to Tarshish. So on a larger map here, Jonah is here on the very eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. This is where God calls him to arise and go to Nineveh. Nineveh is off to the north and east. It says that he goes or he attempts to go to Tarshish. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate about exactly where is Tarshish in the ancient world And there's a number of different options, but the majority of scholars, the popular scholarly opinion, and the one that makes the most sense to me, and there's lots of other textual evidence involved and some other factors, put Tarshish, guess this, in southern Spain. Now, that's not even on this map, okay? It's much further to the west of there. So so God says to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah arises and he goes to Tarshish. The exact 
opposite direction. Now, not only that, but Tarshish was the furthest most city to the west that the people understood in the ancient world. Okay, no Christopher Columbus yet, friends. They believe that Tarshish is the furthest site in the west part of the world that you could possibly go. Now, how far is this? Well, if he was to go to Nineveh, this is the track that he would have taken. This would have been about 650 miles. In order to then sail to Tarshish, and by the way, because of the way the Mediterranean works, the winds, the currents, you have to navigate it in a counterclockwise fashion. He would have started off and going this way to Tarshish. In order to get to Tarshish in southern Spain, we are talking more than 2,800 miles of sailing. Now, this is in the statute mile, okay? For those of you who are like seafarer people, we are in West Michigan. This is not nautical miles. This is 2,800 statute miles. Now, just to give you an idea of how wide that is, the width of the United States of America is 2,680 miles. This is 120 miles longer than the width of the United States that Jonah is seeking to sail to Tarshish. This is a long way. Now, it would have taken approximately a year to get to Tarshish. In the ancient world at this time, with the way ships were, you would travel at about two to three knots. Okay, so now for you nautical people in the room, it's about 50 nautical miles a day. But based on weather patterns, seasons, making sure the conditions are right, stopping at ports, you're talking about a year of sailing to get to Tarshish. In fact, there's another passage in the scriptures that helps us just understand how far away this is. Notice 1 Kings 10, 22. For the king, Solomon, talking about here, had a fleet of, sheeps, uh, fleet of ships of Tarshish. That is hard to say, by the way. And you have to be very careful on stage in a church <laughs> on how you say that. Duly noted for the second service. Uh, at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish, used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. What a fun little detail that is. Three years, Solomon would have ships that would go all the way out to Tarshish, stopping to other places along the way, yes, but they would return once every three years. Friends, we are talking about a very, very long distance away. And Jonah is seeking to get out of there. And it's not that he's just trying to get out of there. Like he is specifically going to Tarshish. It's not just trying to get out of town. Like it's specifically Tarshish. Notice from our text here, this is pretty interesting because in our English translation, the NIV, we get Tarshish twice. In the Hebrew, it's actually three times. The ESV picks us up. Notice, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Like Jonah is really serious about going to Tarshish. And the question becomes like, why is he so set on going to Tarshish? Well, on the one hand, yes, it's the furthest most place to the West that the people believed that you could go. But interestingly, there's a couple of other factors involved. Uh, On the one hand, Tarshish was believed or understood to be a paradise location. When you read literature of the day, anytime people are talking about Tarshish, they're talking about paradise. Jonah's like, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I want to go to paradise. But even more than that, there seems to be an understanding with Jonah that he believes that in going to Tarshish, that in some way, shape, or form, he can go to a place where the presence of God is not there. You say, well, how, how do you get that? Well, notice this passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 19. Isaiah is about 150 years after Jonah. So this is later than Jonah, but I'm wondering if Jonah had a sense of this understanding about what was believed to be true about Tarshish. Notice what God says through the prophet Isaiah. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Grace and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. 
So apparently 150 years later, there's this understanding that God hasn't manifested himself or that people don't know anything about God. It's this idea that God's presence isn't there in Tarshish. Now, for some of us astute minds, we go, eh, it feels a little bit speculative. Okay, now let's go back to the text. Notice Jonah 1.3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, and notice this phrase, from the presence of the Lord. And at the end of the verse, away from the presence of the Lord. It's like Jonah goes, I don't want to go where God's calling me to go. I want to go to this distant paradise. I want to go to this Tarshish area. I want to go to a place where God isn't going to bug me. Maybe if I go just far enough away, God will leave me alone. And he starts going to Tarshish. Now, here's the irony to the readers here is that when it comes to Nineveh, which is where God has called him to go, Nineveh is a dark place. It is a broken place. We'll explore more in the weeks to come, but it is a place of absolute brokenness. Here's the equivalent for us today as far as darkness is concerned. Let me show you our world map here. North America centered here. We're all in the good old Michigan area. If God was to call one of us, the equivalent would be this. God's saying, you know what? I want you to go to that dark place of Amsterdam and minister in the red light district. And our response is, yeah, I know you're calling me that way, but I'd rather go the opposite direction to the paradise of Hawaii. That's where I'd like to go. Now, here's where the irony continues. When we look at these two images, we would go, man, it almost feels like God is not in the red light district. And yet, God would clearly be in Hawaii. I mean, the beauty, the creator's creation on display. And yet for Jonah, he goes, I realize that God is somehow working in Nineveh in the red light district, but I'd rather flee to Hawaii because God clearly isn't there. So there's a tension going on here. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of what Craig expounded about with the Assyrians last week, a really great writer puts all these pieces together at this moment and just writes this about the story. Given this historical context, the prophet Jonah was in a difficult situation. Yahweh asked him to go to his cultural enemies and proclaim judgment in the capital city. He was asked to risk his life preaching and had no guarantees that he would not, like other unwelcomed prophets, be killed. Yet if he succeeded in his mission and they repented, he would not be welcome in Israel. No one, including God's chosen prophet, desired the possibility and threat of their enduring existence. He was caught between a rock and a hard place. And in this situation, many would, like Jonah, act on the third possibility, that of flight. This is probably what most of us would have done. I mean, in many ways, we all are Jonah. (laughs) And so Jonah... Instead of going to the northeast, he goes down to Joppa. Here's Joppa today, a shot from the west. You can see the harbor in the bottom part of the picture. Jonah finds a boat there, and then we're told that he paid the fare. Now, here's what's interesting about this detail, is that this could be understood two different ways based on the Hebrew language. The one way could be this. He paid the fare in order to board the boat that was going to Tarshish. But the other way that it can be understood is that Jonah paid the fare, i.e. he chartered the entire boat. He gets down there and he's like, we're not waiting for anybody else. We're getting out right now. How much does it cost? I'll pay for the whole thing to go to Tarshish. Now, scholars are divided. Did he just pay for a ticket or did he charter the whole thing? We don't know. But here's what we do know, is if he chartered the whole boat, that's really expensive. If he bought a ticket to Tarshish, a whole year of sailing, that is also a lot of coin. Jonah is a man of means. And any way you shake it, he's trying to buy himself out of this circumstance. Jonah just wants to get out of there. And Jonah pays the fare, he boards the boat, and they set sail. And then this is where we pick up in Jonah 
chapter four. Or excuse me, chapter one, verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how could you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So many of us know this story, right? They get out. Uh, God initiates a storm and all the sailors start freaking out. Now, on a boat this size, we're talking about anywhere from about 12 to 20 sailors. They start throwing things overboard. If it's a merchant ship, it's cargo. If it's not a merchant ship, if Jonah just chartered the thing, it's probably just personal supplies that they're going to have to pick up at a future point at other ports. Either way, they're trying to lighten the ship. It says they're also calling out unto their own gods. Now, in the ancient world, the way people thought about gods and goddesses was that there were many gods and goddesses, and each of these gods and goddesses were responsible for different things. And so they believed a lot of gods were confined to a locality. And so if you were on the water, and in this case, these are probably Phoenician sailors because it was the Phoenicians who were the seafarers of the day, they believed that the personified chaos of the sea was a god by the name of Yam. And somehow they've probably wronged Yom or upsetted Yom. And so they start calling on all these other gods because they believed that other gods might be able to intervene to get this other angry God who's all cranked up to just you know, quell it a little bit and calm down so that they can continue with their voyage. They go down into the ship because Jonah has gone down into the hall. And the captain says, dude, wake up. Start calling on your gods. We have to figure out what's going on. This is a very tenuous situation. Lives are at stake. Everybody is concerned. Obviously, they're in the middle of a massive storm. But then something happens with verse seven. It says this. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So something in the storm, whether how fast it came up, the nature of it, it got, it's got the sailors like scratching their heads going, okay, something's not right about this. This isn't just a normal storm. There's something going on here that we don't recognize is going on. We need to try to figure out what's going on. And so they, 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 they go and they cast lots. Now, this was an ancient practice of divination to try to get information about a situation. And this is, how, this is how it was done. Everybody would have some kind of identifying marker, all right? So it would be a piece of stone, maybe it was a bone, maybe it was a certain coin that you had. Everybody would chip into some kind of a receptacle, whether it was like a pouch or whether it was like a cup or a bowl uh, or something like that. Everybody would put something in that would be able to identify you and according to ancient literature, what was done is that they would start doing this, and the first one that popped out, that was the one who was drawn. And it was the idea that in the shaking of it, it was a deity who was in a sense selecting the person. And you didn't want yours to fall out. Some of you are like, I would have put a piece of lead in that thing. Right? So if you are the one that represented the black guy, in this case, it's Jonah, it's not that the person whose lot was drawn was the one who was at fault. It was the one whose lot was drawn had the information about what was going on. And God, who ordained the storm, also made sure that it was Jonah's lot that fell out first. And the moment that happens, the questions start coming. Notice how quickly, in rapid succession, the questions get fired at Jonah. Notice verse eight. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? I mean, it's like as quick as they can, they're trying to figure out, dude, you have the information. What is going on here? And then Jonah's response, um, he answered verse nine, I, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
This terrified them. Let's pause. Why are they terrified? Because their understanding of gods and goddesses is that different gods and goddesses are responsible for different things. And here Jonah is speaking out and saying, I actually worship um, the God who created everything, who's not confined to a locality. He is God of both land and sea. And all of a sudden they're going, you're telling us about a God who controls everything? What? And it freaks them out. And then it says this, Uh, And then they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because Jonah had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Then it says this, instead the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. I find this part so interesting because here we have pagan sailors who are caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. Their lives are in danger because of another man's disobedience, sin, faults, failures, however you want to define it. And yet they're doing everything they can to save Jonah. Contrast that with Jonah knows that he's at fault and yet he doesn't speak up. He waits for the lot to fall to him before he actually shares what he already knows. It's like Jonah has become so numb that he's not willing to speak up when lives are on the line that he's responsible for and yet it's the pagans who are acting more like God in this moment than Jonah. And they try to go back to land because when you saw on the map, they would have had to have gone counterclockwise, which means they would have had to gone along the shoreline on the eastern side of the Mediterranean and they're trying to get back to land, but God's not gonna let them. And so then this is what happens next. Verse 14, then they, the sailors, cried out to the Lord, capital O, or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh, God's intimate personal name. They're now speaking to the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of the universe. They cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. At this, the men greatly feared or excuse me, verse 15, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. That through this circumstances, these sailors apparently now begin following God, the king of the universe. Jonah, on the other hand, just gets tossed into the sea in verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Craig will pick up from this point next week talking about Jonah's time in the fish and the rest of chapter two. But for our purposes this morning, we end with Jonah being down in the sea and then now in the fish. And the question I want to ask is this. How did Jonah get to this point? Like it starts with God saying, arise, right? Arise and go to Nineveh. And yet Jonah arises and he starts going to Tarshish. And he ends up in the belly of a fish, which I'm guessing he wasn't expecting. How does that happen? Well, there's a theme that the writer has introduced in chapter one. And the writer is hoping that we see it. And I'd like to help draw that out for us so that we can see it and then explore the implications of it. If we go back to this passage in Jonah 1, 3, it says Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now this word presence shows up twice here uh, is the Hebrew word panim. Let me hear you all say panim. 
Panim is a word that, yes, can mean, mean presence. But at its most literal, it's a word that means face. It's a word that can mean face, presence, or before. The idea in this context is that God says, Jonah, I want you to arise and I want you to go to Nineveh. That God's face is facing Jonah. God's face is an indication of his presence. It's an indication of his will. It's an indication of his desire. God says, come before me, come this direction. This is my will, this is my desire for you. And yet what we find out here is that Jonah arises. And if God's saying, I want you to come this way, what direction is Jonah going? The opposite one. It's like Jonah arises and Jonah turns his face away from God. Away from the presence of God, away from the face of God. Jonah says, I don't want anything to do with your desire, your will for me. You're drawing me, you're calling me this direction. I'm gonna turn my face away from your face and I'm gonna start heading the other direction. And then here's what we read next about what happens when he seeks to go the other direction. Verse three, it says, but Jonah rose up to flee from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Okay, and then get this. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard. In the Hebrew, it says, he went down onto the ship. Verse five, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below. Literally in Hebrew, but Jonah had gone down. And then it says this in verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. They threw him down into the sea. And in verse 17, he goes down to the whale and this step and this last one are both implied in the Hebrew. And now he goes down into the whale. That the moment that Jonah turns his face away from God, he goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the boat. He goes down into the hall. He goes down into the sea. He goes down into the whale. Every movement in the narrative for Jonah is down. And I would just make this observation about what we learn in this story is that when we turn our face away from God's, our only direction is down. Notice the details in the story. And the way that I want to talk about this downward descent is I want to talk about it in, in two ways. The first way that I want to talk about this is in the context of our disobedience, of our sin, of our brokenness. That when we've turned our face away from God, the only direction we have is down. Think about how this works out in life. Think about the times in your life, in your story. You, maybe you're in the middle of it right now where you've turned your face away from God. You're, you're not living into God's will, God's desire for you. Everything is a downward journey. For Jonah, every subsequent step he takes, takes him further down, 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 and it gets darker and darker and darker. Isn't that true in our own sin and our own brokenness? that as we descend, we descend deeper and deeper. It gets darker and darker. For Jonah, the more he descends, the more isolated he becomes. Right, in our own stories, when we're not living in tune to what God wants, our sin isolates us. That there's this recognition that in the story, 
that when we know that we're not doing what we ought to be doing, that we seek to numb it out. For Jonah, again, he goes, he goes down to Joppa, he goes down to the boat, and then he goes down into the hull of the boat, and it says, and he fell into a deep sleep. That word deep is also connected to the word down. I don't know about you, but times in my journey, in my story, when I've been struggling, and I've blown it, and I've made a mistake, and I'm not willing to come clean, talk to my wife, you know, acknowledge the wrong that I have done, one of my coping mechanisms is sleep. That I literally crawl under the sheets and it's like, man, all I wanna do is go to sleep and I hope that when I wake up, this whole thing was just a bad nightmare and it never happened. And you fall asleep and then you wake up and there's those first few moments you're like, oh good, it was only a dream, it was only a dream. And then you realize in that moment that you are under the covers of darkness. There's a thick cloud of darkness. It's like these covers of darkness engulf you and you realize, man, I am down deep. In this story, we see that Jonah's sin, his brokenness, has now brought other people's lives into this massive risk. Other people's lives are being affected by what Jonah has done and they don't even know at first what has happened to cause this. So this true in our stories as well? See, the reality is, is that when we turn our face away from God and we begin to descend down into the steps, we can end up down here for a number of reasons. It might be because we're struggling with something. I heard a statistic this weekend that says one out of 10 Americans are fully addicted to something. Not just struggling, but addicted. One out of 10 Americans. Uh, sometimes it's our own brokenness, it's the decisions that we've made. Uh, in some cases, uh, it could be something like a, a lack of forgiveness that, that we know God has clearly called us, that his face to us is, listen, I want you to come in this direction of forgiveness. And yet we choose to turn our face away from that. We can end up descending into darkness because of not forgiving. Maybe in some cases, it's God has called you into a new path in your life. He's called you to a new journey, to a new role. And you're like, no, no, I don't want to do it. It's too risky. It costs too much. You have all of these excuses. You don't, you don't want to do it. All of these things can drop us down into the depths. And, and the question I have for, for us this morning is, is that, is this you? Do you find yourself in a place like this? because you've turned your face away from God and your only direction you have is down. See, the invitation of the Lenten season is that God says, arise out of the depths. What does it look like for us to turn around and start to ascend out of those depths? You see, the word repent literally means to turn around to go the other direction. What does it look like for us to repent this Lenten season where we can begin to ascend out of the darkness and begin walking back to the face of God? That's one of the ways that I hope God speaks to you this morning. But I also wanna talk about this downward descent in another way as well. Because oftentimes, and Craig did a nice job drawing this out of the text last week, is that oftentimes when Jonah gets preached, it just gets preached from a context of disobedience. That look what happens when you disobey God. Well, Jonah's story is in part disobedience. And all those things that happen, we go, man, I've experienced that in my own life. I am Jonah. <laughs> Maybe for some of us, we're there this morning. But you know what? There's another facet to how Jonah ends up all the way down here. And that's because Jonah is deeply disappointed with God. It's not just about disobedience. See, sometimes our bad decisions get us down here. 
but other times what we believe are God's bad decisions that we can end up down here as well. Jonah's not happy with what God is doing. And Jonah's basically saying, God, this isn't fair. You should have stepped in. You should have stopped that. You should have taken care of that. You didn't answer my prayer with that. And there comes a point where we go, I'm done with God. Just this last week, I had an opportunity to hear a couple of stories from people in our community and man, they broke me reading them and listening to them. As people said, listen, this is what's going on and this happened and I stayed with God, this happened, I stayed with God, this happened, I stayed with God. But this last one was the straw that broke the camel's back and I don't want anything to do with it. You know what? I understood. I understood why they felt that way. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe Lent feels dark because your story is dark right now. Maybe it has very little to do with anything you've done. It may have everything to do with what God hasn't done or has done and you've been deeply, deeply disappointed with God. I wanna share two stories with you as we're moving towards a time of concluding this teaching. And uh, I apologize for those of you online. Um, This first one, you're not gonna be able to see due to copyright law, but you can uh, YouTube it and watch it later. I'd highly recommend you doing it. It's about seven minutes long, but I wanna show two minutes to all of us in here from the funeral on Thursday for Monty Williams' wife. Monty Williams is the assistant coach for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, His wife, Ingrid, mother of their five kids, last Wednesday was killed in a head-on car accident. Somebody crossed the center line, hit her head-on and killed her. And uh, Monty is a strong follower of Jesus. And I wanna just play two minutes of the funeral on Thursday about what he said in the midst of the tragedy as a follower of Jesus. Let's watch this together. amazing clip and I'd recommend just watching all seven minutes of it when you have a chance because his words are powerful and I know maybe for some of you you sit here and you go I'm not there 
like he's a week and a half out and he's saying that, forgiving the other family. Like I, I'm not at a place where he's at. Here's what I hope you got out of Monty's thing then. He just says, don't, don't give up. That for some of you, you're really struggling with who God is and what God has or has not done. And I would just encourage you, don't give up. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I'm just really, really frustrated with God and, and maybe you've been there for some time. I'd like you to listen to this other uh, story as well. One that's not from the larger church, but one from our local community here at Central from um, Marty and Larry Smith. And I think you'll find their story to resonate with many of you as well. So for those of you online, we can watch this together. So let's do that. I remember I was home by myself. Just remember walking around the apartment thinking, what do I do? How do I take care of my husband and my kids? And, and I felt really just devastated. We worked together for five years. That's where we met, working in the ER. One of the docs from Central came over and said, hey, it's friend day next week. You guys want to come to church with me? We just were shocked that somebody would even ask us. We both found the Lord there. We were baptized there. We were married there. And when we made the decision to answer God's call to missions, when we moved to Central Asia, God called us to help plant a church there in an unreached people group. Our plan was to be career missionaries, and that's when we found out about the diagnosis. My family has a history of Huntington's disease. My mother and my brother both died while we were on the field. It's got a 50% chance of passing on to your children. So it was a time when I really thought, it's in my family and I'd really like to know whether or not I really have this. I was just going through emails one afternoon and there was an email from the neurologist who had ordered the test and he said, I am so saddened to tell you this way, but the markers turned out positive. That was a blow, huge yeah, blow. it was. I literally shook my fist in God's face for seven years. We left our jobs, we left our home, we sold all of our stuff. Now this? And I had to really struggle and process that it's not about doing enough for God. It's about His plan. This is not going to define our lives. He will define our lives. Yeah, I have limitations. I have different ways to talk, different ways to move. God created me this way. You must have a reason for it. I started running about 15 years ago just because I, I really felt like I needed to get in shape. As long as I can put one foot in front of the other, then maybe this is going to help me to be healthier. Here's a guy who shouldn't even be alive anymore. Most men with this disease don't survive past the age of 50. You have run 15 marathons now. It's become a real source of purpose for me. We know that the world is broken. We know that we're broken. We also know that until Jesus comes back, none of this is going to be right. We never went through any of that stuff with a feeling like there's just no hope here. God was just there. That's the foundation we, we live on. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue will know the Lord, and then we'll be in that hope. Such a powerful story to hear. And uh, one of the things that, that resonated deeply with me with that story was Marty saying, I shook my, my fist at God for seven years. And at the end of the video, they're saying, but we saw God's providence through it all. If you find yourself today down here on a bottom step because God hasn't done what you've wanted God to do, it may feel like too much for you to actually turn around and begin to ascend back up out of the depths. But maybe for you just this season, what would be appropriate is being able to just at least turn your head and start looking for God. Because we believe that in these times, God pursues us. And we need to be reminded that, that God loves us, that God is doing something. And maybe for you, it's just being able to turn ahead this Lenten season and to say, okay, God, I'm, 
I'm still sitting on the bottom step. But will you help me to see that you're still with me? See, one of the things I would like to just end with an encouragement to you is this. There's a couple questions that were just really interesting to me in the story. One is that why doesn't Jonah repent on the boat? Could all have been over and done with? He's not ready to. <laughs> he's, he's really struggling with God. Which leads to that second question, why doesn't Jonah just jump into the sea? He asks them, throw me in. They don't, they have to keep rowing. And then they finally throw me in. Why doesn't Jonah just jump? It's because sometimes we can be in such a tough place that we can't even do what's right on our own. And it's in these times where we need to be reminded that we need one another. We say here at Central, we're about amplifying hope and life to all. And we do that by being with God in community on mission. With God is developing a relationship with God, a dynamic relationship with God. If you're at a stalemate place and you're like, I don't, I don't really want to do a whole lot with God, then that in community becomes really big. Because sometimes we need somebody else's faith to supplement our own in really tough seasons. If you're in this place, we beg you, make sure that the people you're journeying with know what's going on. May you be reminded, don't walk alone in this. That Lent is a season where God invites us to arise out of the depths from our own brokenness. If we need to confess things, if we need to, to come forward, if we need to get help, do that. But if you find yourself in a place just being disappointed, we just, we just ask that you would lean into some other people and be reminded that not only do others want to journey with you, but God journeys with you as well. We are not alone. So we're gonna have our worship team come and we're just going to conclude by just sitting in the midst of, of this reality of just pondering a few moments. And then I'll come up and, and close us out of that. But let me pray us into this time and then we'll just have a chance to sit and reflect. God, we bless and we thank you for the day. We recognize that so many of our brothers and sisters are, are struggling this Lenten season. We pray that, um, God, you would give us the strength and the courage through your Holy Spirit to begin to arise out of the depths. That if our own sin and our own brokenness has taken us to some dark places, we pray, God, that the light that comes from you would begin to shine. And God, we pray for those who are particularly struggling this Lenten season. We pray that you would make yourself known to them. And may we be reminded that we do not go at this alone. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.